Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and with me today is Professor Robin Dunbar, evolutionary psychologist and anthropologist. So, Robin, welcome. Great to be here, Alice. Okay, so here is my question. Why are so many people religious? Well, you may well ask that question. It's a puzzle. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's because we have a relatively long history of being able to engage with transcendental universes uh, through our minds, through going into trance and trance-related kinds of behaviours. And that kind of allows us to feel engaged with something which we can't quite put our fingers on but seems terribly important. And I think it's that sense of uh, uh, kind of transcendental experience that is, has created this, if you like, sense of religiosity, which seems to have a deep, deep hold on humans, even when they're quite secular. They, they, they can easily be spooked into a kind of sense of um, uh, some greater spirit that's hovering around you. Okay. And how much of today's religiosity do you think should be best explained by evolutionary psychology? Oh, I think it can all be explained by evolutionary psychology, to be honest. Really? You, th you, mm -hmm. you think that evolutionary psychology is the most important way to understand religiosity today? Yes, in, in, a, in a broad sense, because that... The, the, well, let me back up and say, don't forget, there are two senses in which evolutionary psychology get used. One is... Um, in a purely psychological sense, the design of the mind, if you like. But the broader, looser sense, which is kind of the end of evolutionary psychology I sit at, um, sets that design of the mind within an environmental and social context. And it's that social context, then, that's really important for understanding religion. Because it seems to me, having looked at it fairly closely over a period of time, that what religion really is all about is creating bonded communities. And this kicked in once our typical community or group size exceeded the size at which they could be bonded by um, the sort of evolutionary old models of bonding that are the case in all primates, all the monkey snakes, and that's, say, social grooming, so what's sometimes referred to as soft touch. Right, so this is the fundamental premise of your book, that you can only have a large group, which is important for defending against predators, if you manage to ensure social cohesion, cooperation and trust, rather than killing each yep. other. But the minute you start to expand, the minute all hell breaks loose and we start, you know, biting each other's necks. So the question is, the question is, what kinds of things stop us from stabbing each other in the back? Building up a sense of emotional commitment is what really does it. But that kind of only works up to a limiting group size. And that, that group size seems to be around 50 individuals. Um, that's the size of maximum size of group that primates seem to be able to bond through this social grooming mechanism. 
And if you look at hunter-gatherers, what you find... Oh, yeah, should we we say a little bit about the grooming mechanism? So this is the idea that if I take the parasites off your back, then you start to trust me more. Uh, Alice isn't so evil after all. Uh, Alice's model of uh, of social grooming. The, the answer is yes, but that's only half the story. The okay. real issue with social grooming is that it triggers a very specialised neural system that uh, sits directly under the skin, as it were, and the, and the movement of the hands across the skin and across the hair follicles of the fur um, trigger this this. Uh, very unique and highly specialized neural system that responds to one stimulus and one stimulus only, and that is light, slow stroking at exactly three centimeters a second, which is the speed of hand movements you get when you stroke somebody or or groom them. Um, And that triggers the endorphin system in the brain um, like crazy. And it's the endorphin system that creates a sense of warmth and relaxation, coziness, all's well with the world and trust in the person you're doing it with. So, okay, you know, grooming removes the uh, bits and pieces of vegetation and uh, burrs and all those kind of things and the odd scab or uh, dead dead, dead skin um, and does you a bit of useful uh, hygienic um, cleaning, as it were, but the real uh, underpinning of it and the reason primates spend so much time engaged in grooming each other and they some of them are incredible they can spend as much as 20 percent of the entire day um one in one fifth of the day engaged in this activity and it it's that endorphin kick that it gives you that underpins social bonding in primates and holds the group together now once you get above 50 you're in kind of dead water really because the system doesn't really enable you to build a bigger bigger group. So what humans have done is latched onto it. But wait, can I can I just understand that? So uh, grooming feels nice, so we enjoy it. How does that enable meet? How does that enable group expansion? It's it's slightly more complicated than it looks because what's going on here is building up very intense friendships, if you like, with a group of people within. your community who will come to your aid at all times because the problem you're trying to cope with and the problem all monkeys and apes try to cope with is the stresses that living in large groups occur so these are quite casual and unspecific in the sense it's just it's the sort of london commuter um Mm. experience as it were they are crowded on the underground every morning going to work um, and, and, and you're just kind of feeling edgy because people keep bumping into you accidentally and sometimes deliberately. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it feels very edgy and, and, and uh, stresses you. And those stresses are mm. unbelievably bad for your general social and reproductive success. So what you need to be able to do in order to live in these very large groups is minimize those stresses and the best way of, or at least the solution that primates have, or the very social primates have adopted, is to form these kind of alliances, as it were, very close little alliances with with just a few individuals. And that just keeps everybody off your back. So instead of sort of bumping into you as they walk past or nicking your route that you've just spent the last hour digging up, they just steer clear of you that little bit, and that reduces the stresses enough to allow you to 
sort of live together. And it, it's, it's, it's enabling the group to stay together rather than being dispersed because people kind of go, I'm not putting up with this any longer. I'm getting out of here, if, which is effectively what otherwise happens. Groups break up and, and I, disperse. And, you, and you, 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 I want to make two points. So one, it's not just about conflict, distrust um, and, and, and a homicide, but also this reproductive point that you meant, that when women are stressed, they stop reproducing. Yes. Uh, these are kind of the end product of all this kind of low-level stress that's going on. And homicide is just the kind of tip of the iceberg, as it were, when it finally all kind of bursts out and floods over. Um, most of the rest of it is, is going on uh, sort of in the lower reaches of the iceberg. And it's just the volume of that stress that destabilizes your entire, well, your immune system for one thing. So it, it leaves you more vulnerable to kind of the d diseases that the world insists on throwing at you. And then it has a terrible effect on the menstrual endocrinology, particularly of females. This probably also works in the case of males in the same way, but it, it has less dramatic effects. But stress in mammals in general blocks the cascade of um, hormones that triggers ovulation. Um, so you get what are effectively anovulatory menstrual cycles. It looks like a perfectly ordinary menstrual cycle, but ovulation just doesn't occur. So it's infertile. Um, and that's very, very easy to trigger um, either through physical stress. So, you know, you, you can switch women's... Um, menstrual cycles in and out quite literally by putting them on very heavy uh, circuit training regimes uh, and sw literally switch them on and off as it were um, and and there are lots of examples in monkeys where um, stress within the group suppresses in some cases even puberty females don't even go through puberty because the stress is being imposed on them uh, by the other members of the group take them out of the group pair them with the male and they'll go through puberty and conceive literally within a couple of months it uh, incredibly finely finely balanced this system and it's re it's really there for a good purpose is there to prevent you being both pregnant and lactating at the same time which is too much of a burden in in the kind of natural world of monkeys and well mammals in general because it's a mammal-wide phenomenon and and what this seems to be mainly driven by in fact is stress effects induced by the females because it's the number of females in the group that causes this infertility effect. Robin, do you know, I don't think I've told you this, but one way in which you had a big, big influence on me was getting me to think more about neuroscience and endorphins. Like, for example, in economics, many people think about, you know, rational choice and self-interest, right? And this is all about our, our conscious mind and what we're deliberating between. Although well, increasingly there's an embrace of culture, recognizing ideology, beliefs, our expectations, how we think other people will react. But all of that discourse within political science, sociology and economics, I think for the largest part at the moment, is all about our conscious brain. You know, when we're thinking right. about choices, we're thinking about our ideas, our beliefs, our yeah. worldviews. Very, very rarely, I cannot even think of a paper that is thinking about, well, how does that affect... Um, uh, endorphin release you know the idea that a particular kind of human behavior would 
stimulate you know pleasure by grooming that's not discussed at all so reading your work has totally opened my mind to thinking more about neuroscience so that's one thing i must thank you for so i really appreciate this thinking about stress thinking about what gives us pleasure and like for an example um and maybe I'll come to it later. Okay, right. So we've got this big conundrum that we need bigger groups and one mechanism is grooming, but that's hard to do at a larger scale. So how do you scale up this social, this pleasurable, what is a pleasurable act that will scale up social cooperation? Well, the way we've done it, it seems over the course of really the last 2 million years of evolution as far as we can figure out, is to find behaviours which also triggers the endorphin system, but don't involve the intimacy of physical uh, touch because it, it's that the intimacy of that effect that really limits the number of individuals you can do it with and therefore the size of group you can support on that mm -hmm. little sort of pyramid base, as it were. Um, and, and what we've discovered is a whole bunch of things which turn out basically to be our kind of social toolkit, uh, not only between you and I as, uh, uh, as two individuals, but also for the community as a whole. So they function in community bonding as well as dyadic bonding. And those are laughter, uh, singing and dancing, and singing here uh, originally without words, so some form of chorusing or humming or whatever you want to call it, if you like. And then after the evolution of language, probably around 200, 250,000 years ago, with the appearance of our species, then what you get, Fairly quickly added in is feasting, eating and drinking, particularly drink, drinking alcohol together, um, telling stories, particularly emotionally wrenching stories. But, you know, comedy is good as well because that hits the original old laughter button. And in addition to that, religion or the rituals of religion. It's not so much the religion itself, but the rituals of religion. So I think religion becomes important in that context at two separate levels. One is the kinds of things we engage in. And of course, what do religious rituals often look like? Well, there's a lot of singing. There's often a lot of dancing. There's a lot of emotional storytelling, how the founder struggled with uh, against the odds and, and, and uh, um, eventually uh, Nirvana arrived in some form, as it were. Um, uh, but also there's this curious kind of um, uh, cognitive component, which is this ability to experience this other world, which seems to be on a, if you like, a spiritual plane, I suppose it would often be this kind of ecstatic experience, uh, which you get when you go into trance. And what that does, combined with the storytelling component, is allow you to set up a reason why you should engage in these rituals, why you should keep coming back every so often um, and do the rituals. So it's it, what keeps religion functioning, if you like, at, at the top end of that scale is the fact that we can link those two together. But that depends on some very high order cognitive skills, um, which uh, at, at the level that we can get into them seem to trigger or, or be involved really in, in, in this kind of trance-like effect, this ability to go into somewhere else. Although actually, of course, it's inside your mind, really. But, you know, we have this experience of leaving the body or going into a, a, a different plane, different spiritual plane. 
So here are two different theories about religion and social cooperation. Because before reading your book, I was more familiar with scholars of the axial age and the rise of moralizing supranational punishment. And they say that, well, as societies were expanding, these rules like thou shall not kill, you know, people really believed those ideas. So they stopped killing each other. And it's that theology, those beliefs in our conscious brain that fostered more group bonding and sense of identification together. Whereas you're saying, actually, it's not necessarily the theology. It's by pra by practicing and doing all these nice things together that we enjoy, then we start to, you know, trust this larger group. He's yeah. a Muslim, I'm a Muslim, we're brothers yeah. together yeah. sort of thing. Exactly so. And this is my kind of pitch, if you like, is that all the different disciplines, many different disciplines that have looked at religion and the history of religion, the theology of religion, all these things have focused on this very high level, smart, cognitive -y sort of stuff, like all the uh, injunctions about what you should or you shouldn't do. Yes. And what mm -hmm. all of them have ignored is that's not the reason why people join a religion. The reason why people join a religion is because they have something like an ecstatic experience, something that's very emotional and deep down and they can't explain because in a very crude sense, if you like, it's kind of right brain because that's where most of this like, emotional activity seems to go on. And, and it doesn't, the right brain doesn't connect up terribly well with the conscious left brain where we do all our language. So we kind of know what we feel we can feel it, but we can't put it into words and we can't explain it. It creates that magical sense. Of That's the reason people join religions. And it seems to me if you look at all the big doctrinal religions, as we have them now, the world religions, uh, yes, they have a whole bunch of theology and stuff and they have all sorts of interesting things. But actually, if you look at how they work, what makes them work is the rituals that they engage in in their services, um, it, the uplift you get from that, the sense of belonging to a community. Uh, and that seems to be very, very important. It, and, and you can see the kind of signature of these very ancient religions that pre uh, occurred before um, the Axial Age religions and the other big doctrinal religions of the last, I don't know, five, six, seven thousand years, um, when we had these hunter-gatherer-like shamanistic religions which were based primarily on trance very immersive everybody mm -hmm. engaged in in, in in the activity and anybody could go into trance as it were and those kind of small scale components keep re-emerging all the time and and you see it particularly both in the size of the congregations that are ideal sizes for religious communities uh, which turn out to be the same size as hunter-gatherer communities, somewhere between 100 and 200 people on the one hand. And they, these big religions are bedeviled all the time by this kind of bubbling up from underneath somewhere, way at the bottom, these small sects and cults, which are really focused on a charismatic leader, invariably, often who has rather wayward and weird theology in his regarded as an absolute yeah. heretic by the powers that be, um, that, that attracts people by the kind of force of um, the, the, the novel rituals that are involved maybe or the, the activities involved, all the singing and the dancing that goes on in, very often in these kind of uh, small-scale cults that bubble up from underneath. And, of course, some of them 
kind of survive. And most most of the big religions spend their time trying to suppress these heretical cults at the bottom because they're very uncontrollable. They're anarchic. Um, uh, uh, and if you let them go, you destroy the kind of theological uh, unity of, of, of the mainstream religions. So they really don't like them. And if you look at the history of all these big doctrinal world religions, they, they spent a lot of time trying to suppress cults and, and sects of this kind over there. Sometimes they get away and build up and become a, a new religion in their own right. The history of religion. Okay, I have three questions. Yep. Well, no, for the first is a comment. So I think the important point is what you're really trying to do is establish a theory of motivation. So whereas some scholars are saying we're motivated by our beliefs about what is right and wrong, and we try to do that, and you're saying, no, we're motivated more by what is giving us pleasure. We're kind of hedonists. And if there are things that are nice that gives, gives us those emotional bonds, no, you're, you're, you're saying that's not right. Um, it, it, it's, it's sort of, yes, but I don't think it's just the sense of pleasure. It's this sense of warmth to another person or to a group of people which create this sense of belonging. Okay. And if you yes. if you look at normally... Um, if okay, you so ask, let me rephrase. One okay. people are saying we're more, more motivated by our beliefs and you're saying we're more motivated by our emotions. Yes, absolutely. Let me give it that broader characterization. Yeah. Okay, yeah. recalibration, recalibration. Yeah. Okay, sorry. You <laughs> it, saying... it is more than just emotions. It's emotions mm. and mystery. All right, so there's this mysterious component that we can't quite put our finger on, we can't quite describe, but which is very, very alive uh, in our experiences of it that we get from ecstatic experiences. And without those ecstatic experiences, I don't think you'll have any kinds of religion. You know. Um, okay, talking about some um, theology, what about the importance of giving an explanation about how the world came to be. You know, many of these religions, yeah. you know, even if we go to back to sort of Chinese folklore about dragon snakes living in the sea or or what the, you know, the mother goddess was doing or water gods providing, whatever. There's always a story about how the world came to be yeah. and what's doing. What, it's, there's a sense yeah. of explanation. How much yeah. credit would you give religion to making sense of our world? Oh, it's actually very important. It's fundamental because... Having an, what you might think of as a foundation story, an origin story, is a major component of how we create large bonded communities. So if you look at, let me just step back one step and draw attention to the fact that the way primates create friendships with each other and therefore create their social groups is actually a what's called a dual process mechanism in psychology. In other words, there are two things going on in the brain using different parts of the brain that work in tandem with each other and reinforce each other. One of them is this grooming effect, but the other is this cognitive effect, which is why they have such big brains, uh, which is really managing the qualities of friendship that you have with other individuals. So it's creating um, the endorphin system is creating a sense of warmth and bondedness towards another uh, animal. But at the same time, you're also building a relationship, a cognitive relationship of trust and obligation and reciprocity and so on. Now, that's been exploited in humans in a very dramatic way by creating a whole sphere, if you like, a whole layer of uh, cultural and cognitive components about the quality of the relationship and 
those are what we refer to generally as the seven pillars of friendship. So these are kind of dimensions, cultural dimensions that define who you are as a person. Right? So they're a bit like a, um, a supermarket barcode, except that rather than having it on your forehead, you speak it. They're things you speak. So they're the language you speak, the things that interest you, your uh, sense of humor, your the music you like, uh, hobbies and interests, your worldview, um, all these things. And, and when we meet new people, we kind of tick them off on these. And then, you know, if you've got a, enough of those dimensions ticked, then you've got a, a working friendship, a, you know, close friendship, and they, you bring them into your inner circles. Now, that whole sense of having a community that we belong to, because what all these seem to, these seven pillars of friendship seem to identify is a community, a small community that you grew up in, where you were socialized, basically, where you learned how to be a member of a community. It can change over time. It's cultural, so it does change. You, you meet, uh, discover new music, or you, know, you meet new people and you change your views somewhat. But still, they kind of identify this ancestral community. And that ancestral community is very small scale and you know exactly how to trust them because they all share the same views of how the world works, right? Even if, even if your knowledge is don't trust them at all, <laughs> you know exactly how, you, how to relate to them and how they'll interpret what you say. So that a key component of that written into it, the sort of backbone of that whole story really is origin stories we belong together as a community because we had a founder way way back in time and they came here from somewhere else and they struggled and they found a lovely place to live and they, they made a life here and that's that's why we all belong together and so religions capitalize or the doctrinal religions then capitalized on that particularly i think the axial age religions where you first have kind of um, sacred texts, which invariably say this is how it all came to be, you know, how the founder discovered the truth and how the founder had to fight against these, you know, wicked forces that tried to oppose them. You look at the Quran, you look at the Bible, you look at the Indian um, uh, Hindu texts, you look at the Buddhist texts, they're all the same. They're basically saying the same thing in a different, different context. So that sense of um, having this sort of theme or story, foundation story that identifies why we are the chosen ones, in effect, is a very, very important part, part, part of the process of creating this sense of belonging. And it, it, it is quite, we've looked at um, uh, the number of close friends that people think they have outside and inside religious uh, activities, as it were. And, and normally, you would have about five what we would call shoulders to cry on friends. These are your kind of intimate friends, that, uh, friends and family that you would go to for emotional, financial, whatever, social support when your world falls apart. Then outside that, you have a sympathy group, another 10 people, so making up 15 people altogether. Um, and the sympathy group are the people you feel deeply attached to at, at, at an emotional level. Now, for most people, that's these, and these numbers are incredibly robust. The inner circle is five, and the outer circle, which includes the inner circle, of course, is 15. People who are very, very actively religious often include the entire congregation in that second circle. They, 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 they just feel 
they they belong and there's nothing else but kind of weekly attending these rituals that go on in in the church service to produce that effect it can only be be um the 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 ritual activities involved and this sense that you you know you you're constantly getting fed from the pulpit um you know the theme that we are we're all in this together we are a band of brothers okay i want to make three points two of them are complimenting you and one of them is a little question Okay, so just yesterday, you and I were discussing this brand new paper that came out that shows that where you have falling religious attendance in the US, then that seems to be uh, leading to falling welfare, etc. That people going to church really makes or or a different kind of religious service really makes a difference to their well being. And they use this with an exogenous shock in the blue laws which then enable people to do things that they might like to do other than church. Mm -hmm. So I think that really seems to hold up that this sense of religious bonding um, can improve people's um, people's people's welfare. Then the second point I wanted to give is a similar example of how rituals can foster social cooperation. So, for example, U.S. fraternities in colleges. So, met young men go through all these initiation rituals that might be painful or terrifying or daring, and it's all about group bonding. And they and they also might live together and they bond as a group. And then a bunch of, uh, there's a meta-analysis of fraternities and also college athletics, and they find men who are members of fraternities are much more likely to perpetuate rape myths and much more likely to deny accusations against members of their fraternity. So that's clear evidence to me of social cooperation. They're, they're trusting each other as a group and they're saying, hey, this, yep. is, this guy is part of my group. Yep. You know, we've bonded together, so I'm going to back him up. So I think that's a nice example of how rituals can foster social cooperation for those insiders, for those privileged insiders. So that, I think, is very in line with what you're saying, both those points. But here's my question. So when I ask you, you know, why are we religious? You talk about this, this group bonding, this social cooperation, this origin story. And the emphasis is all on social cooperation. But I wonder, have religions changed over time and does this emphasis on pro-sociality omit the ways that after the axial age uh after a period of trade development social stratification and the rise of despotic rule those religions actually legitimized hierarchy they legitimized labor servitude in the case of the hindu caste system for example under zoroastrianism a third of sins concern female sexuality so it aren't those religions fundamentally different? What they're doing is legitimizing despotic rule, they're legitimizing inequalities, they're legitimizing female seclusion. In China and also in Egypt, rulers who claimed divine authority, they often blamed natural disasters like floods or famines on earthquakes on disobedient women. Like, you know, I have divine backing from God. Everything I'm doing is great. It's just these women that, you know, messed everything up. So isn't... So to me, when I look at those axial age religions, I'm thinking, hey, this isn't just about happy, clappy social cooperation and group bonding. This is about getting people to internalize and believe that this unequal system, whether that's in terms of caste, labor repression or or, or gender, is okay. And that's what God ordained and that's what we should do. So if I read ethnographies of northern Nigeria or uh, Iraq, it talks about women genuinely believing that they must have sex with their abusive husbands because otherwise you know the the angels will descend upon them with mm. fiery neck collars etc yep um uh, and that's exactly what they do <laughs> there's no question about it but 
Um, the gloss I'd put on it, well, let me just step back one step and say uh, what what we've come to realize, I mean, there's a kind of general view and it derives from this economics perspective um, where the world is full of strangers to whom with whom we trade we buy and sell stuff with them right you know which is fine that's that's what economists do and uh, primarily that's what they try to take but what's happened is that view of exchange or cooperation in a, in another sense um, has come to dominate our views of social evolution in animals in general to some extent but but humans in particular and i th- i think that's completely wrong <laughs> If you look at when people cooperate with each other, the people they cooperate with are in this small inner core group. The people outside that community of, let's say, 200, maximum 200 people, are people you do trade with. And the difference is that within the small group, you do favors for people, not because they ask you and you kind of go, hmm, now, when I took Alice out for a beer last time, did she make me pay or did she pay? Uh, in other words, tossing up, you know, the the, the, mm-hmm. the 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 accounts, as it were, of the relationship. No, we don't. We just go, you know, you're my friend, I pay. I don't even think about it. I don't even want you to pay me back. Um, and most of our exchanges and levels of cooperation, whether it's, you know, helping uh, somebody else harvest their field or build a house or whatever, um, is done for free because it's done with these people we're all very closely bonded to. We don't start to think in these kind of, if you like, monetary terms until we're out beyond that, in, 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 in further out in, in the social uh, network, beyond our local community, our personal local community, let's say, not, not necessarily a geographical community. What seems to be happening is it's a Cooperation is a twofold process. Cooperation is the outcome of being able to live in stable, coordinated social groups. That's what's how it's actually working. So we're not forming groups to cooperate. We're actually forming groups for protection against external threats like raiders yeah. and, and predators. And we're getting cooperation for free out of that. Um, it's but only... I just wonder if cooperation is is the right way we should be thinking about it. So you, so you mentioned working on someone's land. There's been some really great research recently coming out of the World Bank, and they look at differences in agricultural productivity in Africa, hmm. and they find that women-owned farms are less productive, and they've tried to understand why. And what they find is in some parts of Africa, but not all, women are more able to marshal and more able to exploit labor. So in northern Nigeria, though not southern Nigeria, men can get more men, other other people to work on their farms and they're more like able to get them to work very, very hard. So that was an example of, it, yes, you can call that cooperation that people are working on each other's farms, but they're more willing to work harder and more people are more willing to do it if it's a male-owned farm in northern Nigeria. Whereas in south and southern Nigeria, there's no such difference. So I, when I look at that, yes, it's cooperation, but it's cooperation whereby people have internalized the sense of, well, yes, I must work on that guy's farm and I must work very hard. So doesn't that tell us that there's, I just, I just don't know if cooperation is the right way to see, to see this when there are so many inequalities baked into what these religions are doing. But that's, that's all about scale. 
right? So, so the, the picture I'm trying, I was trying to kind of paint for you, as it were, yes, is when you have these very, very small village-sized communities. I mean, kind of traditional village-sized communities, not village-sized communities as we would think about them in the modern industrialized world. Um, everybody's relationships is on a personal footing, and it's that personal footing that allows you to to help other people out and cooperate with them and not worry too much about it. But as that community size grows, as it inevitably has done through through time, that's when the problems arise. And that's why, as my argument anyway, is why the doctrinal religions appeared when they did, because they co- coincide with these dramatic increases during the, the Neolithic in the size of communities from these kind of standard... 150, 200 sized communities you see in hunter-gatherers and small village communities to early towns and early cities and obviously getting worse and worse and worse um, through through time up to the present day. As the, as the population unit, the size of the polity or the size of the city gets bigger and bigger, it becomes more and more difficult to control them. And the only way you can do it is to impose top-down discipline. That's what doctrinal religions give you, because they give you now uh, the sort of uh, moralizing high god in in the sky, as, as you might say, who wags his or maybe her finger at you whenever you uh, dis- disobey the rules essentially the rules of the community. And indeed, it's even better than that because, um, you know, we can't see what you've been getting up to behind the bicycle sheds on a Saturday night um, uh, as mere humans, but God can, right? <laughs> and now No, it's great. <laughs> but, but let me give you another example where you were talking about... Okay, so one example I loved in your friendship book is that when there is social condemnation from someone in our peer group, then we feel upset. And it's that emotional trigger that might moderate some of our behavior. So again, it's this subconscious behavior, which is so important to social regulation. And to the best of my knowledge, again, social scientists rarely engage with that kind of the neuroscience of social policing. And I think that's great. But let me give um, another example. So you were talking about... uh, you buy me a beer, and I, I thank you in advance for that gesture. So in in, 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 in Song China, the, the Neo-Confucian scholars, they lavished praise on women who sacrificed themselves for male honor. And we see the same in, in Indian texts where they're, you know, praising women who sacrificed themselves, you know, whether that's by committing sati or, you know, killing themselves before invaders came from Central Asia, all those kind of things. You know, that's the most wonderful woman. And even today there are shrines for women who committed yeah. sati, etc. Yeah. And so that can make a woman feel that what she's doing is the most wonderful thing. And that's the most brilliant thing. And even today, you know, for example, in Germany, where there's, you know, condemnation of the working woman, or the working woman is made to feel guilty for spending time at work, you know, that she's not a proper mother, and that makes her feel bad. So I just wonder to some extent, you know, this is sort of, you know, the sense of Catholic guilt, right? And some of this is making people feel bad, emotionally bad, if they're not complying with religiously ordained yep. injunctions yep now this goes back to the your 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 previous earlier comment actually on exactly this point and and it's quite right i mean i don't disagree at all with it but i think that's simply the outcome of doctrinal religions because they've now been able to set up 
this kind of enormous uh, volume of theory, if you like, theology, which explains why you have to behave in a particular way, in the way that essentially the community wants, um, in order to um, uh, not destabilize the community. So it's, I mean, you know, you're paying a price for this in some sense, because you're being made to do things which you might not wish to do. Um, or you might prefer not to do because you might prefer to have fun, right? <laughs> Go out dancing every every weekend. Or, or wild this. adultery, wild adultery. Or wild adultery. Um, uh, uh, all these pleasurable things which are always you know, forbidden by all the doctrinal religions because, and you can see the logic of it, at a communal level, they become uh, very disruptive. Right. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think, I think, I think that. See, uh, sorry, I was going to say. I think you see a very nice example of this. In so, Rich Sosis and I uh, have uh, done some work, uh, and he's done much more than me on this over the years. Uh, on nineteenth-century uh, millenarian American com- communities, you know, all these kind of religious, and some of them are secular communities. What's interesting in the, in there is the more things you have to give up to to join, giving up swearing, giving up telling lies, giving up meat eating, giving up, um, uh, in the extreme case, giving up sex, uh, unless, of course, you are the founder, in which case you're yeah, right, yeah, yeah. much as you, <laughs> you like. But the more of these things you give up in order to join, uh, the longer the cult lasts, and particularly in religious cults. And I think what's interesting is the one that really seems to make the biggest difference is giving up sex because that means no children. And the moment you get children in a community, you get conflict because now uh, my my children annoy you or do something bad. (laughs) And, of course, you want to, you know, throw a brick at them or whatever it may be, remonstrate with them or punish them, make them behave, and I come to their rescue, uh, pouring in, uh, and now we've got a fisticuffs fight between two families going on. So if you take the children away, or all the children belong to the cult leader, then there, there is no conflict at that level. Children can be surprisingly disruptive from that point of view. We do it with our pets, you know. You see it all the time, dog people walking their dogs, uh, you know, one dog attacks another. Uh, uh, you know, your dog has just attacked mine. No, it didn't. It was just saying hello. <laughs> People and are that, incredibly that... defensive of their kind of little family, if you like. And that, that it's, it's how to reduce those levels of conflict that the doctrinal religions, I think, are primarily struggling with and to find ways of of diffusing these these sources of conflict before they got off the ground because once they're out in the open you're done for the, the community will just fall apart very quickly and let me give you an example that you'll know better than me for example uh, age mates where you have a strong band of brothers yep. and you know yep. you need that strong band of brothers to go out and raid cattle or defend your community against predators yep. 
But part of what keeps them strong is that they, they owe their allegiance to each other as yes. they've been through rituals, they've been out together, yep. and they have very little to do with children. In fact, there's a new paper showing that even when uh, groups in Uganda benefit from a pensions reform, they, the child nutrition doesn't necessarily improve because that's the level of loyalty to their age mates. Right. That's really nice. Yes. No, I, I, you know, an awful lot of, if you look at sort of, Small scale societies and big scale societies as well, but it's less obvious there, I think. Small scale societies have all these kind of mechanisms that are an attempt to create this sense of belonging, if not to the whole community, at least to part of it. And then that, can, that part of it gets locked into the bigger picture in a way. But also, most of them seem to be, particularly when they, where they involve men, okay, you know, sort of. Um, uh, age grades, you know, sort of go off raiding cattle from other people, but other people don't count. You know, if their cattle, is, right, the right. sky will tell you, their cattle were given by God to the Messiah. It's our right to go and uh, 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 take them. This has always been their traditional view. Um, uh, what those kind of male clubs, if you like, do is reduce the level of conflict that would otherwise occur between young males because they're a yeah, perennial nuisance uh, if you let them be. And, and it seems as though it's one of the key ways we figured out. These are cultural institutions. They're not kind of written in stone in our genes anyway. Um, but what we seem to have done is find these processes where we can kind of institutionalize what goes on and then use that to diffuse the... Um, uh, conflicts that invariably break out and you know they break out between women and they break out between men uh, probably just as frequently but the problem is when they break out between men they usually end up being more destructive because you know males are generally speaking bigger and stronger and can do more damage if they they lose control um, and so you, you see these kind of men's clubs being formed in in kind of hunter-gatherer societies and the transition into village settlement life um, and what they're doing you see it very nicely in the in the american uh, uh plains buffalo culture um where they you know these small bands are coming together once a year for a month maybe as a, as an entire tribe a thousand people they're all sent around they, they have a, a big fest and do some heavy buffalo hunting. The rest of the time, they're just doing normal hunting and gathering. Um, but they know they've got problems uh, of control of what goes on. So they sort of um, appoint a police force, which is usually the 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 the, the males from a, one or two of the bands who sort of function as the police force. But then what they do, if there's a squabble between any of these, these young men, they hike them off to a peace uh, teepee, and they make them sit down and smoke a peace pipe together with all the everybody else, all the other men sitting around the outside of the teepee, and they make them talk to each other. And the the fact that they're engaged in these activities, that, and you know, tobacco is hallucinogenic. <laughs> it's used traditionally was heavily used, you know, in religious festivals. So it creates this kind of trance-like lightheadedness if you're not smoking every day. Um, and you end up loving this person you've just <laughs> smacked around the head, you know, over some trivial, <laughs> trivial issue. And, and and it's extraordinary how 
well they sorted it out, you know, and, and I think kind of men's clubs there thereafter constantly sort of appear in, in different guises in all forms. And, you know, monasteries are just men's clubs in a, in a different guise, if you like. It's, um, and that, that reminds me of um, Edward Slingerland's new book, Drunk, where he makes the point that many business deals are sealed with alcohol because yeah. that's fun for, yeah. and it's a feast and everyone enjoys it and they all feel happy and they like yeah. each other. Yes. And he suggests that's one disadvantage of Zoom meetings yes. in terms of fostering that close cooperation. But where you see, and I, and I think you see where I'm pushing back against you and Slingerland, is that you can get this cooperation within these male US college fraternities yeah. and within Kenyan Maasai yeah. age mates. But then it's the cooperation between that in-group rather than for everyone. And some people are, are, are more winners than others, like the, you know, the women who then struggle to make rape allegations in the US or the women who are locked out of patriarchal governance in the Maasai system, where it's only married men speaking at the village assembly or whatever. Indeed so, yes. Um, but at one level, the problem is mm. the world is not a simple place. And therefore, there aren't simple solutions. So whatever your yeah, solutions sure, sure, sure. are, yeah. they're going to be, they're kind of sticking plaster solutions in that they work and solve a problem, but they don't solve all the problems. And they may actually trigger additional problems elsewhere in the system. And so you end up kind of, you know, a bit like the, the, the white rabbit. Uh, in a, uh, Alice in the Looking Glass, running uh, constantly and inventing, in this case, new institutions uh, just to try and stay on the same place, never actually quite getting to nirvana. Um, and, and by the same token, you know, there is there are some some of the males are are heavily heavily discriminated against as a result in these kind of systems. So if you look at most of the Native American, um, particularly in the North uh, and the Northwest. Uh, Native American societies, you know, they all had slaves and slaves were either war captives or they were orphans, right? It was, if you're an orphan, you're right at the bottom of the social pile and you could hover uh, as much as you like on the edge of the male club, but you're not in it. Uh, absolutely, you know, absolutely. And, and now I want to turn to one of my favorite aspects of your new book on religion, why are all the doctrinal religions in a very narrow latitudinal band? I love this. I loved it. Yes, this, <laughs> this is the Alice Evans uh, uh, um, uh, explanation for lots of things. And uh, uh, you got there before me, Alice. Um, I'm mere, merely a follower. <laughs> um, it's all right, my student. It's all right. <laughs> um, but I thought it was just extraordinary because when I was looking at this stuff, uh, and I was started to wonder why the doctrinal religions all appeared at about the same time, which is the kind of definition for them. They all appeared in the axial age, as it's called, which is sort of sometime um, around two and a half, well, 2,000 years ago to about three and a half thousand years, something like that, that sort of time frame. They, all the big modern um, uh, doctrinal religions have appear at that point almost together and across the whole of the old world from you know sort of uh, the Middle East at one end right the way through uh, the Ganges plain in, in in India to to China um, and the question is why and then it suddenly dawned on me actually they're all on a geographical axis they're sitting there and they're in a very strange location um, which is the northern subtropical so now I was kind of clued into this 
um, by some work um, done by Randy Thornhill and and um, uh, Fincher uh, some years ago, probably about ten years ago, um, showing that there were very striking latitudinal effects. Um, uh, north and south of the equator, but primarily north of the equator, that's where most land surfaces, on the size uh, and the reciprocal of that, the number of religions per, per square kilometre, and also similarly on the size of languages. And I thought this was really very interesting, and they attributed it to the fact that the equator is a kind of uh, location, because it's hot, sweet, and sloppy, as they used to say about the ideal conditions for growing cocoa in, in, in West Africa. You know, it's a perfect environment for uh, um, uh, diseases, new diseases to erupt. And indeed it is. It's, it's exactly what happens. A lot of the new diseases, um, aside from, from flu-y type diseases, but most of the others sort of emerge in the, in the tropics. Because um, <clears throat> it's a perfect breeding ground for, for, for um, bacteria and viruses and anything else that, that causes diseases. But as you go further north outside the tropics, uh, conditions are less and less good um, for these little organisms. And so things improved dramatically. And, and um, their argument was you needed to avoid exchanging uh, um, uh, parasites and so on with your neighbors, basically. So one way of doing that is to have small communities each with their own religion, then you didn't go and do silly things like marry each other, because um, that's the best way of spreading spreading diseases around the system. So um, I kind of kind of looked at this and thought, actually, they've missed a trick here, because in fact, if you think about it, uh, what's also going on is that um, growing conditions are perfect in in the tropics. You get well, right on the equator, you get twelve months of, of growing and harvesting time a year. You can have 12 crops a year if you want, but as you go further north, things get tougher and tougher and tougher. But if you look at the distribution of diseases of this kind and um, growing seasons across latitudes, uh, you, you, you enter into a kind of, almost a, a kind of living nirvana um, just outside the tropics, this very narrow zone, the northern subtropical zone in particular, just 12 degrees of latitude wide, so it's really quite narrow, where you have <clears throat> still have good growing conditions, so we're not quite up into sort of northern winters yet, uh, but your uh, disease loads are now very low, um, and and conditions for growth is absolutely perfect. And so it's no surprise that after the Ice Age retreated 10,000 years ago or so, the archaeological evidence suggests a massive population explosion in just this area, certainly in the Sahara in North Africa. The Sahara was teeming with water and green, lush and fishes and crocodiles and hippos and monkeys and all sorts of stuff which don't you know you can't find within a thousand miles <laughs> of the place now it's very very rich there's wonderful growing conditions i think all that happened was uh the population expanded dramatically it created a lot of fractiousness in, with with neighbors raiding each other it's always easier to steal something from somebody else and go to the trouble of uh, catching it yourself or um, catching and killing it or growing it or whatever. 
So they started living in villages. Well, that's not my idea. That that was suggested some years ago by by historical sociologists that that was the problem. That's why people started living in villages. It was for protection. But you had this problem of how to prevent people basically killing each other when they're living in such close physical proximity. And at this point is when you see the rise of doctrinal religions and 5,000 years later, maybe, the rise of the Axial Age religions. The Axial Age religions seem to occur uh, at a point in time where there's immense upheaval, political and social and uh, upheaval with people moving about all over the place because what happened is just before that that point, um, the rain patterns changed, the weather patterns changed, and the Sahara dried out over a period of about 300 years, 500 years, something like that. So about 4,200 years ago, the Sahara began to dry out, and this seems to have triggered all over that whole latitudinal band, right as far east as China, immense political instability with sort of bands of folk wandering about laying waste and you can see it in the archaeological record in in the near east you know you've got a lovely little city then you've got a meter of ash (laughs) and then you've got another lovely little city and the thing has just been burnt to the ground so most of these kind of cities small cities and and towns in the near east were just burnt to the ground by by invaders uh and, and groups of people moving from all over the place because this is also Exactly when so how did the, the, how did the conquest relate to the, so the, how did the conquest relate to the climate instability and the rainfall? I, it, I think they were just forced to move by 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 the collapse of the climate generally. Right? Uh, a lot of them uh, are okay, coming out of Europe actually. It, it, at least it seems. Particularly the big problem in the Eastern Mediterranean was these very strange people called the Sea People, which nobody knows what on earth who on earth they were, except that the kind of Egyptian written records and everybody else's records from all over the sort of Eastern Mediterranean, just call them the sea people. They've turned up again. And often they brought their cattle and their women with them. So they were they were coming down from the north somewhere, uh, in, in seemingly in desperate search for land to settle. And that's what they were kind of doing. The, the Egyptians kind of had a couple of big battles with them, sorted them out and then said, OK, as long as you don't make a nuisance of yourself, you can stop. Down there. I wanted to go back to your point about latitudes, because in case it isn't clear for the readers, what your argument is, and I'm going to crudely synthesize, is that in the tropics where food is plentiful, but there's high risk of disease if you trade with someone else, then there's a strong self-interested reason not to trade, but to stay together. Yep. And that's why in places what like Papua New Guinea, you might see this enormous heterogeneity of languages because these close-knit groups, they're able to self-provision, they don't trade, so they don't assimilate, so they each have their own groups. And yep. that itself may explain some of the very high rates of violence that we see with outrading, for example. Yes. Exactly okay. so. I have an alternative hypothesis. I have an alternative hypothesis. So that argument would be the lack of markets encourage um, you to favor, it, it, with the lack of markets would affect uh, morality. So Benjamin Enke has a new paper where he suggests that market exposure encourage universalist pro-sociality. So it's not that we believe that we should be all together and everyone else has equal rights and we should treat people fairly. But he thinks the more we interact as traders, the more we come to adopt these different cultural ideas. Uh, yes, do you think? I, I, I don't disagree with that entirely. I think the problem always is 
and, and what we really need to guard against and invariably don't is we look at these incredibly complex biological and social and political and whatever systems that human societies are set in complex environments and then we tend to see a very simple-minded uh, explanation for what's going on and we, we often make the mistake of confusing correlations for causations because what we're dealing with in reality is systems where you've got lots of feedback loops going on and things that arise as consequences uh, of something else happening kind of logically earlier in the system as it were so you've got a cause and effect re relationship underpinning the whole thing but cause and effect relationship sets up other um, factors that have to be solved uh, very often ha how to find enough food um, uh, in order for you to make that initial change work at all and then there'll be knock-on consequences that turn up out of the blue for free as it were um, uh, that allow you to expand on the initial change but you know, wouldn't have been enough to carry the weight of instituting a change in, in the system at all. And these are connected up with lots and lots of feedback systems. So we have to be very careful about understanding the causal processes involved. Okay. I think that's what we, we kind of get muddled on. So I, I'm my question always would be in this sort of case is, yes, is this cause or consequence? Right. right. I have another question. Okay. So this is going back to your big theory about rituals. So Pew data tells us that in Christian societies, women are more likely to go to church than men, much more likely. Whereas in Muslim societies, <laughs> men are much more likely to go to religious services. Now, the implication of your theory would be that if men are if Muslim men are heavily participating in religious rituals, then they should have stronger group bonding and they might have stronger identification with that re religion, more likely to comply with its teachings. But then if I if I look at Muslim societies, women, even though they're not participating in those group rituals, because the Quran says it's not obligatory and there are these ideals of female seclusion, etc., women are still very religious. They're they're going along with many of these ideas, they accept them, they internalize them. We're not seeing, you know, strong contestation. Yep. Doesn't that doesn't that depart or, or Yes, doesn't that create a problem for your, your theory? Um, not necessarily, I think. I mean, I'd like to know a lot more about what's actually going on under the surface here. I mean, you see those kind of effects kind of widespread. I mean, by the same token, if you look at most of the Christian denominations, certainly historically, except when Christianity was very, very young within the first couple of centuries, when you often had women deaconesses and priests as well as male. but but you know sort of that aside the rest of the time you know you've had women uh, you know traipsing in and out of the church doing the religious stuff if you like but it's the blokes that are running it but right? still if it's the rich if, if your theory is that it's rituals that are binding people yep. together then the fact that then it should i understand it if it's the rituals binding people together then then the christian then then as long as people are going to rituals then they should be bonding so you're yep. going to church you're singing the yep. hymns together you're saying your lord's prayer etc but here here in many muslim societies women aren't necessarily doing those group rituals together you know sure. they may be praying five times a day yep. but they're doing it alone so they're missing out 
on the group bonding effects, yet they still have the same outcomes. So that seems like a te- so going back to your test of cross- wanting causation. That seems like a, an interesting test, yes. which isn't. Yeah, but the the question we have to ask, I think, is about the bigger dynamics that's going on in there. Most of those religions, I mean, at, at one level, uh, I think you would see the same kind of pattern in Judaism as well. So the question is, does this reflect a particular generic culture in that? Same latitudinal band, actually, and often it's associated with herding, uh, and particularly sheep um, herding cultures, uh, pastoralists, essentially. Um, <clears throat> is the is the are they solving? You know, you've got the toolkit. You know, the system is handing you a bunch of jigsaw pieces and say, "Go and make a picture up out of this that's coherent and works for you." So you don't have to do it in any one prescribed way. There might be a way all the bits fit together particularly well, but you know, this is the world is complicated, so you can't always get Nirvana. Um, and I'm kind of intrigued by the possibility that what you've actually got with something like Islam saying uh, all the all the blokes have to turn up and, and, and go through the big rituals is what you've got is giant boys' clubs here. Right? It's a way of keeping these troublesome uh, younger males in particular on the straight and narrow, not being too disruptive. And the women can kind of get on with the generic processes of religion without having to be necessarily involved in all those kinds of formalized rituals. So the question then is, what are the women actually doing? In general, there seems to be a near consensus that women are more religious than men are. And there's some kind of interesting evidence looking at um, uh, autistic individuals who have a kind of, uh, if you like, a, an ultra male brain uh, to, to, to back that up, that, that, that women are more naturally religious. That might be because they have much better skills in terms of mentalizing, which is this capacity that both underpins religion as a, essentially as a byproduct, which you evolve to allow us to manage relationships. So they're better at managing relationships and they're better at handling larger social groups on the whole than men are. Um, now the question is then, can they just get on in a private, semi-private capacity in a sort of, uh, without going engaging in all the sort of public rituals, which with what is essentially the core to the religious process. So I don't, and I don't think we really know because nobody has ever looked at people. You know, almost everything on on the study of religion involves looking at the kind of big observables that you can see. In other words, the big rituals. Nobody goes has has really looked in any great detail. I don't think anyway. Um, at what is actually going on right below the bottom of the system. There are a few cases where this comes out. It harks back to an earlier point, really, but I, I kind of think this is a particularly nice example, and that's the Hutterites. People may be familiar with from the Dakotas and, and southern Canada, right? Now, they always... Is it, these, are, these are kind of fundamentalist uh, Christian... Um, 
religion uh, um, uh, that, that views the community as the core uh, to the good life, as it were, and everything everything is done at the communal level like that, but they insist on splitting their communities. The Amish are actually the same, splitting the community once it gets above 200, because they say you cannot deal with it, these kind of conflicts, if you like, in the management of uh, the enterprise, both the social enterprise and the economic enterprise on farming on, on which the community is based. You cannot deal with those when the community size is large without having a law, law laws, a police force, judges, courts, and all that kind of stuff. And their whole ethos is about the community as a face-to-face community. We talk things through. And so rather than uh, allowing the community to get bigger and more productive they keep it small because then every everything can be done kind of at the face-to-face face level now it's still you've got this very strong separation between the two sexes in there with the males kind of running the both the religious and the i suppose the the, the political show but what the women are doing underneath you know at a, at a, at a kind of it's not a casual thing but it's it's just not overt, it's not hidden, it's just how they're uh, working it, is very, very effective probably in terms of just managing the relationships that allow the community to work. So the question is, is that also the case in some of these other other, other religions like Islam? Is, is that what you're kind of seeing? Um, uh, and I don't know, because I, I don't think anybody's ever taken the trouble to look. But I see, I think... So in your book, I interpreted it perhaps wrongly, as you saying that religious rituals can foster social cooperation. Yes. Now in that one example of Islam, I see you were saying, well, maybe religion's role was more about disciplining these unruly young men. So it's a kind of imposing discipline and creating kinds of hierarchies, right? Yes, yes. But, but, but this is a two-pronged thing. This is not kind of either or. Uh, the rituals are creating this sense of belonging. That's what's yes, yeah, they're yeah. triggering no, the morphing system by taking part in them, particularly when they're highly, highly synchronized, as they indeed are in, in Islam and uh, prayers, uh, public prayers. Um, but that and that's kind of creating this raw emotion, this raw feels of belonging to the community, and you must behave well uh, towards members of the community at the very least, anyway. Um, but that's different to the fact that all these doctrinal religions also impose discipline from on top. So it's working top down and bottom up at the same same time. Small scale traditional religions, shamanistic type religions, um, ecstatic type religions work bottom up. It's my commitment to the uh, religion or the guru or the charismatic leader or Mm. whatever that causes me to behave well uh, to to my fellow community members, but once you, the community gets above, let's say, two hundred as the absolute upper limit, then I, I don't have that same sense of commitment to all those other folk out beyond my one hundred and fifty to two hundred people, and so you know, uh, fraction fractionation starts to take place, gaps emerge. Uh, I'll behave nicely towards my little part of the community but but not towards the the lot out there and what the doctrinal religions seem to be doing is both ramping up the ritual component by making it much more formalized and bigger scale and making sure you turn up and turn up regularly you know whereas you know trance dances for example in 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 hunter-gatherer societies 
kind of occur at random intervals when somebody thinks, gosh, things are getting a bit ropey. Let's have a trance dance. And it kind of resets relationships in the community. Whereas if you look at all the doctrinal religions, they say, no, 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 you must come every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever, on a regular cycle and get your regular inoculation of, of, of ritual. Um, but then in addition to that, they're imposing this top-down discipline. Um, but wait, can I can I come back to that? Because our doctrinal religions, do they always spread through top-down enforcement? Let me give a couple of examples where they seem to spread from, from demand, from bottom-up. So shocks and instability, like in the US mm. South, agricultural shocks. Um, my friend uh, Wafa has a nice paper suggesting that led to an increase in religiosity in the US South. Or in Argentina, financial crises seem to, uh, there's sure. a nice paper suggesting that yep. increased religiosity. Yep. So couldn't that be insecurity and, oh, yeah. and need for a sense of reassurance trigger yep. the up, bottom-up demand? I think, I think, um, and there are, there are several papers now, I think, which suggest that there's always an upsurge in, in, in religion, as it were, or re- religious behavior generally, uh, following any kind of uh, environmental shocks of that kind, environmental or economic or social and political shocks. That's the whole issue with the rise of the Axial Age religions in, in the um, uh, third millennium uh, before present, as, as it were, 3,000 3, years ago-ish. You know, you've got this huge amount of instability going around and, and what looks like an attempt to kind of stabilize the system internally against these external threats has arisen out of charismatic leaders. Now, these charismatic leaders are around everywhere. They're there all the time. They didn't just suddenly turn up out of the blue on those occasions. What seems to happen is people gravitated to them and created the the momentum of the religion from what would have been just a small sect hanging out with some particular religious religious leader. Um, But it's, it's not that the, the, the doctrinal religions are switching the way in which social discipline is organized if you like what what they're doing is adding another layer of discipline from a different source as it were now top down as opposed to bottom up so they 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 still have that basic underpinning that's always been there for all small-scale traditional religions going back into the mists of time um you know over the last i don't know maybe even Four or five hundred thousand years ago, back to the archaic humans, the the, the Heidelberg folk, folk and the Neanderthals. Um, never mind, anatomically modern humans, our our own species. Um, you know that has never gone away, and that's my point: is that that's always there. What 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 happened with the rise of the doctrinal religions first, around eight thousand years ago, and then the axial age religions around three thousand years ago, is the adding on of new layers of of religious complexity, which allowed improved control over the behavior of the system. And that in turn allows you to have much, much bigger communities. The Axial Age religions all seem to appear when the size of the community, the political unit, as it were, the polity, is about a million people. And you've got real coordination. I want to criticize something you say by providing support from your own argument. So you're just saying, you're just saying, this is like a long game of cat and mouse, right? So you're just saying that all shocks seem to stimulate an increase in religiosity. And actually, I think there's one exception. In the US, over COVID, there was a downturn 
in religious attendance because people have switched to a more online lifestyle and that seems to have Mm. exacerbated a decline in religiosity. So that is an example of a shock which has not increased religiosity precisely because of the mechanism that you identify fewer people participating in these group rituals. You're way ahead of me, Alice. (laughs) That's that's very clever. Um, You betray your origins as a philosopher. Um, (laughs) That's another another lapse philosopher. I love it. (laughs) Okay, listen, listen. It's just my game of chess. Yes, go. I I mean, that's, you know, whatever happens, happens, as it were, right? At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is explain a complicated world. Um, And the theories are just our best current guesses. So, you know, as uh, Popper reminded us, the most interesting uh, uh, experiments are the ones that don't work because they make us go back and look at our assumptions and the design of our tests and so on, and we rethink the whole thing, come up with a better explanation. So these these cases are always interesting. I, I think my best guess response is simply going to be that this probably reflects to some extent this big shift in pattern that we've been seeing over the last maybe three decades or so that's been described as um, a, a move from believing to belonging. And it's associated with a move away from the big doctrinal religions, certainly Christianity, less so Islam, I think, away from, but essentially away from the big doctrinal religions with their set-piece services in, in, in um, churches, special places, as it were, um, to much smaller, often more charismatic um, type um, uh, religions, house church movement, all these kinds of things. Um, and and uh, what you're seeing is is actually just part and parcel of the tail end of that shift away from the big religions. How long it will last is another interesting question. It's answering a different need that people have. You know, people's needs are constantly changing um, as there's the general circumstances and their particular circumstances change. Um, and, and that, you know, results in, if you like, but pursue this metaphor, uh, more mutations in the way religious things are done. And, and some of them were, and, and these are going on all the time. Most of them sort of peter out quite quickly and don't very rarely outlast the, the um, death of the charismatic lead founder, as it were. But, but uh, you know, some of them sometimes will. So we will see. History will tell us. Um, alas, we'll have to wait for a long time, probably, to see the outcome of it. But it's an interesting experiment while it's, while it's going. And it would be really interesting to know what's actually underpinning that motivationally um, and and how it's working out for them. Are they getting, if you like, getting the buzz um, that they've been looking for? And I think you see this, you know, you saw a lot of that in the 60s and early 70s with the hippie movement and this sort of importation of Indian, um, primarily Indian anyway, um, uh, yogi type um, 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 religious views. I mean, they're mostly derivative Hinduism, I think. Um, uh, uh, And, you know, they were hugely popular among those um, who can't remember 
being in the 60s because they weren't there or they were there, but they weren't there, <laughs> famously remember. Um, but they kind of mostly petered out uh, in the end. And actually, it, this just reminds me, because I was thinking about this study that you mentioned earlier about the blue laws. Oh, the deaths what, of despair, yes. The deaths of despair. What struck me about this is this elevated mortality is in the 45 to 65-year-old age group. Mm-hmm. And who were those people? They were the people that were in hippie communes as 20-year-olds, 20, 30 years ago. And I wonder if what we're seeing is not a shift out of mainstream religion, but actually uh, a bunch of people whose religious experiments in the 60s just led them nowhere. And that's why they've got nothing to do. Wait a second, wait a second. People who were in the hippie communes in the 60s, those were people who would be in their 80s now. yeah, well, yeah, uh, no, no, no. They, 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 they would have been in their twenties then. Yeah, they would have been in their twenties now. But in the, am I getting my maths crazy wrong? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think they. The, I mean, well, okay. They, they, don't forget the hippie movement moved, moved uh, yes, yes. on a long, um, long after the sixties and early seventies. I mean, it's, it sort of didn't fade out probably till at least the eighties, eighties through the 80s but it just struck me that this is a group of people who were never really bound into a religious a mainstream religious fraternity at all because you don't see this effect at all in the african-american communities and they weren't ever. Yes, that is really interesting. It's in, really interesting in that, that you don't see deaths of despair in the African American the hippie movement because they had a very, if you like, I mean, the hippie movement was the sort of reaction against mainstream religion as much as anything, yes. if you like. And you know, the the African American church, Christian churches, Pentecostal sort of churches, have never lost their appeal right the way through to the present day. Um, and and it just made me looking at those data go oh here's an interesting possibility actually that you know this is nothing you know they've got their causal logic the wrong way around <laughs> they've misinterpreted correlation as 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 a causal relationship that actually um, what you're seeing is two things which are both correlates of, of something else namely a move away from um, uh, formal religions during a kick that kicks in with the hippie movement and and hippie movement didn't really start till kind of well into the late sixties, properly speaking. Um, And that, you know, you've got two things that are consequential, but aren't related to each other. One is, uh, you know, a dropout from mainstream religion. And the other is this kind of descent into despair because they've got nothing else to hang on to. Because that whole thing kind of went nowhere. Okay, what else in evolutionary psychology or humanity do you not know the answer to? What are the big puzzles for you now? Um, Let's see. Um, Kind of we've, I think, understood quite well the processes uh, underpinning friendship. I still feel we don't have an especially strong grip on community formation because these these two things are directly 
related to each other, as I've kind of suggested, because they they exploit the same mechanisms, uh, or we exploit the same mechanisms to create communities as we do use in creating close friendships. But I think trying to understand exactly why we form these large-scale communities in hunter-gatherer societies, that's the origin of it, as it were, still isn't terribly well understood. What is curious you don't about... i thought you i thought we you i thought you established that it was protection against raiders that is that, what we or, think. or for example that to take what, over yeah, like and i think the think. compelling evidence for that uh like you were mentioning the pacific northwest communities when i looked recently um at the ethnographic atlas data on d space it's it, for the indigenous native americans the patrilocal ones were overwhelmingly concentrated in the pacific northwest and I suspect yes. that was to hoard or defend those pri- those those prime fishing um, spots. I, I so so think that's right. So that seems very plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Like everywhere else, right. then didn't have those very you know ice. Yeah. You know, every, if you're a hunter gatherer, you can just go off. You know, the land is infinite. Go off to a new yeah. spot. Go off to yeah. a new spot. No, no, I agree. And this is why the kind of environmental context then becomes very important. And there isn't a kind of universal. I mean, none of these things, not even monkeys and apes, for heaven's sakes, are driven to behave always in the same way. They tweak their behavior, their social systems, in the light of their current environmental problems, what what it is they're trying to solve. Um, This doesn't mean to say they can do anything. You know, the playing field they're having to work with, you know, has limits and they can't play outside that. Uh, playing field, um, but their ability to respond flexibly to the demands of different contexts is fundamental. That's the, why primates have been so successful, because they can respond flexibly in that way. And of course, humans just do that big time by comparison. Have you read The Dawn of Everything? Uh, no, I have so in it. that, in, you just remind me of an argument they make. So in, in The Dawn of Everything, Graeber and Wenker make this argument that Humans were tremendously inventive and innovative, and they, you know, they shift in and out of different social situations. And, and you make that brilliant point about land scarcity. You know, throughout the world, people have dealt with land scarcity, and they've responded to it in different ways. Whether that's mm. through primogeniture, or whether that's through having monasteries or nunneries to get rid of these surplus people. There's lots of cultural innovation. But so I think uh, Graeber and Wenkrow are right in their argument that there is lots of cultural innovation, as you say. But for me, I think that cultural innovation has always been at the group level. And it's been yes. at the group level rather yeah. than the in- individual level. Yes, so because yes. of social learning and because of social policing, we tend to do what everyone else in our group does. It's not that I'm, you know, Alice Evans independently writing my own feminist treatise. It's that the groups are culturally yeah. innovative uh, and yep. that varies around the world. And yep. I think that's a really core point to distinguish. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely crucial because your survival as Alice Evans, the individual, depends on the community's survival, right? So the community... Yeah, I need to be. Work. I need to get Robert to be nice to me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, um, but, but, but at the end of the day, we're not that infinitely flexible. It's amazing how different you know, different cultures are and different societies are. Um, but actually, you know, there are limits to that flexibility, um, you know, some things clearly work better than others, and they seem to have to do with other constraints in our psychology and, and so on. Um, so although you know, I'm, I'm not terribly sold on the arguments of, as, as I've sort of 
gathered it, which is more secondhand rather than the, reading the whole thing, just dipped into the early chapters of that book. Um, but it seems to me that uh, there are some constancies which are very surprising, which are kind of unexpected, which everybody seems to have to grapple with and which dictate what we can do. And one of those is the fact that only certain community sizes work. So if we look at our personal social networks, however we measure it, we've looked at them on in phone call um, databases and postings on Facebook and Twitter, face-to-face contacts, all sorts of different ways. Your social network looks like a series of layers with very, very constant numbers. So these numbers are at 5, 15, 50, uh, 150, 500, 1500, and then... That's pretty much, that's effectively the size of a tribe. Those numbers are invariant. Um, uh, you don't think technology society. can change that? No. If a, ver- if a person is incredibly charismatic, then they can marshal Twitter to oh, uh, you know, create an empire. Being charismatic is different, right? But they mm. don't have personalized relationships. This is about personalized relationships. And, and it turns out... You don't those... think I could do that with my podcast? If people listen to my voice. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just hear me out. Just hear me out. Everybody loves so... your podcast. No, no, no. Okay, so listen, listen. So when I went to India, lots of people had already listened to my podcast. So they, even though we'd never met, we'd mm-hmm. never corresponded, there was no interaction, but people had listened to my podcast. They knew that I'm just this bumbling academic. So they think, right, she's fine. You know, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kindly invite her to our house. She's not a threat. She's not a dangerous person. Exactly. So, so people were, in, so people trusted me and were more and were welcoming and they included me in their communities yep. and were incredibly nice, incredibly yep. generous. And, and, and that was partly because this technology, this podcast had enabled them us to form a relationship, even though there was no personal interaction. So we were yep. building trust at scale because yep. of a technology. Yep. But it, it, it's a very, very fragile form of trust that's being built. Right. We do that all the time. Right. Uh, and, and these layers correspond essentially to different degrees of, of trust uh, and a founded often on different degrees of the seven pillars. So the seven pillars really define um, the membership of your community, but you you can use them uh, to create what we sometimes call one-dimensional clubs to create larger groupings. That's what we do to create tribes. So we all belong to the same tribe because we speak the same language, which is how a tribe is defined, uh, and we have the same origin myth, origin story, as it were, foundation story. Um, And that just allows us to have enough trust with people. You know, the importance of the seven pillars here is their distance cues. They allow me to recognize you instantly. I know where you come from. You're from my community. Right, well, let me give you a counterexample. Let me give you a counterexample. Not Alice Evans, because I am just an academic. But let's take an example. um, In the US, there was a show called The... Mary Tyler Moore show. It was yeah. about this independent career woman. Um, it was show came out in the 1970s. And so viewers wrote letters to her or viewers formed an incredibly strong attachment and they saw her as their friend or many people feel like they know a celebrity. They see yep. someone on TV and they feel they really know them and understand them as a person. Yep. 
So isn't that the formation of a club or a bond? Or for example, sure. Lady Gaga or someone or, or, or any yes. of these people have incredibly yes. strong, incredibly loyal fans to such an extent. And let's talk about group bonding. You know, there might be a case, you know, one male, maybe, um, okay, you know, I don't know so much about celebrities, but I do know this one. So I think Justin Bieber was... Damn it. Justin Bieber had one girlfriend. He left that one girlfriend to go with another girlfriend. And fans of the first girlfriend were incredibly mean In and incredibly horrible to the second girlfriend because they had that primary yeah. loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. So they had never met yeah. them. They had yeah. never interacted with them. But they had their strong loyalty. Doesn't yeah. that tell us that you can develop these big groups at scale? Yes, and, and Selena and, Gomez. That's the first girlfriend, right. and the second one is Haley something. Right. I, I, I'm on top of my celebrity gossip. Okay, you're two steps ahead of me in that case. <laughs> um, the answer is yes. I mean, that's exactly how those kind of charismatic effects work. Uh, the interesting question is why we're susceptible to them, uh, but mm. they work even at the level of uh, our, our small inner core. Uh, social networks, as say our standard 150 Dunbar's number personal social network, because we can include, there's no requirement um, as to why the occupants of uh, your Dunbar's number circle should be people, right? It just says you you can only have this, that's about relationships. You can have the, only have this number of relationships at any one time, essentially. And you can put anybody you like in there. So you can put your favorite cat or your favorite horse, or if you're a pastoralist, your favorite cow. And they do, right? Uh, you can also put your ancestors, and they do. It creates ancestor religions. Um, uh, and of course, we always, all of us, you know, will have our recent ancestors, uh, um, you know, our, our grandparents and so on that, that, that are no longer here, died. Um, they're still there, you know, sort of in their little slot, and they'll, maybe fade away over time. Um, but also, you know, there's absolutely no restriction, it seems, on having any other kind of uh, um, spiritual uh, person in there. You can have uh, saints if you become a particularly attached to a saint, or you can have God or the Virgin Mary or whoever, uh, and you can have characters from, from soap operas. You know, it tends, the question, the main question in these cases is, what is allowing you to have space for these virtual reality figures, as it were, that no longer, that's say they don't exist in the physical world in the here and now. Now, they may have existed once. Um, is it because you're, um, you just have, you know, few friends and family, you've got lots of spare capacity left over and you fill it up with whatever, whatever you can get hold of or what? That, I don't think we anybody's really looked at in any detail, but we know it happens, and we, we've we've actually found you know looked at um, <clears throat> uh, examples of that and, uh, and and shown that it exists as a process, as it were. So I don't think there's any doubt about the charismatic effect, and that's what creates these religions. Is at root, it's a charismatic. Wait, wait, wait! I want to, I want to interject. Forgive me. But I think, so in your book, I interpret it as saying these rituals foster social cooperation. But whereas I would say that, number one, the outcome variable might be something different. It might be solidarity or compliance with hierarchy. And also that social media can 
amplify that kind of solidarity and trust. So here's another example. There was recently a trial between Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, both of whom, the celebrity actor Johnny Depp. And many people were very angry or unfavored his account, believing he was right. And so they would aggressively harangue Amber Heard. So that's a kind of within groups. So so the social media, watching Hollywood films, enabled trust and solidarity. And I believe Johnny Depp, he's a nice guy. I saw his great friends. I saw his great films. He was a super pirate, et cetera. So therefore that woman must be the villain. Now I have no comment on the case. What do I know? But it's the idea that we can bond, we can have an alliance, and then we can harangue and attack the person who's in the outside, in the other group. Yes, and that yes. and, and, and I think social media enables us to do this yep. at scale. And we saw it with Trump and Hillary that people would go out aggressively, spend their time aggressively. So doesn't so doesn't so so when I say it, it, it does, so but when it, you, so, so you're answering by talking about friendship circles, and I'm saying no, the outcome variable is solidarity uh, against an outsider, against yep. someone who's our enemy, and social media can amplify that kind yep. of cooperation, that yep. within groups yep. cooperation. Uh, I absolutely agree completely with that interpretation that is uh, completely right and the 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 question in some sense is why we're susceptible to those kind of processes because normally we want the ground truthing of seeing the person in front of us to have a cup of coffee with or a beer with or a dinner with or something like that um to, that really cements the relationship and yet there's a kind of weird effect where we can if we don't have that ground truthing, we can be dragged down and absolutely so it becomes so immersed in the person or the relationship that even though it's a one-way relationship, this is produces these guru effects, um, it's very difficult to get out of. Now, it's actually very, very similar to what happens in uh, romantic scams on the internet. So romantic scams on the internet work because they exploit our natural processes of forming a romantic relation, indeed forming any friendship of any kind, even a non-romantic friendship, a platonic friendship. The way we do that is somebody has got to get off the fence. Otherwise, you both sit there at opposite ends of the room going, shall I, shan't I? Somebody has got to say, damn it, I'm going to go and uh, open up the possibility of having a friendship. And what we create once that process gets into play, is a kind of avatar in our minds of who this person is. They become this wonderful person. It's the rosy sunglasses effect in romantic relationships. And romantic relationships won't work if you don't have that rosy sunglasses experiment because none of these people are perfect. You just have to believe they're perfect. And the evidence shows that the rosier the sunglasses, the longer the relationship lasts. But in real life, what kind of prevents that runaway effect is simply the ground truthing we get from actually interacting face to face with somebody rubs the edges off but it doesn't destroy completely the 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 avatar if you like now the way the scammers exploit that is never to allow you to actually meet them you know if you ask for a photograph they'll send you a photograph of models pinched off some modeling agency or some Greek goddess or Greek god on a beach somewhere. Um, And uh, what they kind of do is by by never allowing you to physically meet them and see what they're like, kind of immerse yourself so deeply in the mire that you cannot get out. So when you finally get to meet them, 
you forgive anything that you know the fact they don't like a Greek god or a Greek goddess. Uh, you kind of go, that doesn't really matter. You know, they just just didn't want to show that they were an ordinary person, and, and and you start becoming incredibly forgiving, and and it's astonishing um, how difficult it is to actually get out of that. I, I, I um, knew somebody um, who worked on this this whole area and, and worked with the police, and she said, you know, you would go along to somebody's uh, door, as it were, and, and bang on the door of the police and say, look, you've been scammed. You know, here's the evidence that you've been scammed. You've got to get out of this relationship. And they would say, oh, yes, dreadful. You're right. I never realized. I'll, I'll stop communicating immediately. And so, good. Thank you very much. Let's, uh, um, uh, we'll all go off home again. And then said, so two months later, you'll be back knocking on the same door. So, but we told you you're being scammed. Why have you got back into contact? Well, they were so lovely and they were very apologetic and, you know, and you kind of go, you know, you're you just in <laughs> over the top of your head mm-hmm. and you cannot get out of the Wow, that's the an extreme thing. case. But I think your, your book, so this is from your book, The Science of Love and Betrayal, which is wonderful. And I think your, your, your point has far broader implications and it makes sense of a wider phenomenon that you're saying that if people are just corresponding by text, they may... They only have partial information yes. and their imagination yes. Yes. may fill so. in the blanks yes. and create this wonderful persona. Yes. Yes. And that's why, for example, people who might be online dating, they might be chatting and they only see those texts. Then they imagine this person yes. is great and funny and witty, whatever. Then they meet in person uh, and they feel nothing. So I think you're, you're so scamming yes. is an extreme case yes. of that. Exactly. But I think it's something that has far wider yes. resonance with, again, a new type of technology. But then, but then I mean, Robin, the whole point about that yes. is that the world is never perfect. There is no such thing as perfection. You cannot get it. You make do, right? All relationships are kind of, it'll do, for them, if only for the moment, right? So what happens is, is in making any of those, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship or a guru, you kind of go, oh, yes, well, they're not perfect. But on the other hand, they have these redeeming features and that's enough mm-hmm. to keep going with. And, and it, it, the if you like, the puzzle is why we're so susceptible to those kind of psychological motivations, drives. I'm not even sure what you pitfalls really. Um, uh, is it, interesting in itself. You know, why do we have that susceptibility? What what role has that played in creating the community that we live within? In allowing the community to work, you know, function as a community, it must have some role in that. Um, but it, as I say, the problem is. It's very easy for somebody else to lift the brake off, and the thing just goes into overdrive and escapes escapes you, and and, and you get hauled under, as it were. So there are lots of interesting questions in there that bear on many different facets of life. But I think you know, sort of celebrity culture is simply that gone mad. That said, we clearly find the virtual world of the internet less satisfactory in the face-to-face world. There's something about the face-to-face world which seems to make the difference. And, and uh, you know, I say most of our experience on things like Zoom and the like has been that it works well for established relationships. It's not so great for yeah. starting new relationships out of the blue. Um, but also... Is missing two key things, and it's very difficult to do most of these things that are part of our social toolkit together, 
okay, I can make you laugh maybe, but it's not the same. Sometimes, Robin, sometimes. I know. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's not the same online. It's much harder work online than if we were sitting in a pub somewhere or at a cafe or whatever. Uh, you certainly can't sing and dance so easily and uh, um, you can't eat and you can't drink with the person. All these things that trigger the endorphin system. And on top of that, there's something about the raw emotional closeness created by being able to physically touch somebody else when you have a any kind of meaningful relationship. Ah, yeah, your grooming not, thing. Yeah, not not with complete strangers. We don't do that kind of thing, even. In... <laughs> but I think uh, this is something. This is something that a number of people have picked up on, like uh, Jonathan Haidt talking about how. The rise in isolation, especially among teenagers, retreating to their bedrooms, being more introverts, not going out, learning to drive, not having fewer dates, yet not getting up to no good and not, not getting out, you know, not socializing so much, not going to the cinemas together with pals, as I yep. did as a, as a teenager. Exactly. And now many of them are experiencing anxiety yep. and depression. I think there are two major theories of the anxiety and depression, especially that's rising among both girls, especially and also boys is one is that they're feeling insecure and anxious because they're judging themselves by idealized yes. depictions on Instagram. Yep. And the other is that it's a function, as you as you imply, of less group bonding. Yes. So they're being alone, they're not spending time together, uh, and that's taking a hit on their mental yep. health. And, and those, the, the whole business of creating relationships is hugely complicated and hugely costly. It takes us a long time. Um, the sense is it probably takes your first 25 years of life to build up the skills to manage relationships. And then we're not that good at it. <laughs> but if you haven't had that, that long period of practice in the sandpit of life, uh, then your, your capacity as an adult is hugely impoverished in terms of managing relationships, because relationships depend on the skills of diplomacy. It's knowing how to interpret what somebody is trying to say or inadvertently says and and, 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 and figure out whether they're actually being rude to you or, or just pulling your leg. Um, it, it's, it's kind of knowing how to establish a working relationship with them such that, you know, when they do accidentally kick sand in your eyes as they run past you in the sandpit you know they didn't a you know they didn't mean it mm -hmm. deliberately and b you you can figure out some way of kind of making it okay with them you know all these kind of things and it's a, it is the most complicated thing in the universe i always say uh, to learn those skills they're not given you have to practice them and it takes a lot of practice and if you're not getting that practice because you're sitting at home you know, on, on, on your screen, then mm. I'm very, very worried about um, the future social uh, integration of communities. Yes. Robin, listen, you know, I think you're a superstar, but I really want to, I want other people to read your books because you really, truly, you've influenced me so much in terms of getting me to think about rituals and also neuroscience and how our emotional responses can, can shape social behavior today. And thinking about the interactions between geography and cultural evolution, uh, you're a real superstar. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robin. Thank you for inviting me on, Alice. Okay, my online friend. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.
Very good. Lovely to talk to you.